Good morning. Welcome to St. Columba's, our forum hour. Uh, honored to have you all with us. Let's start with prayer. The Lord be with you. Holy God, we ask for a moment of peace. Open our ears to your word, our hearts to your justice. May we live boldly, always searching out ways to bring you into this world for all people. In your holy name we pray. Amen. It's an honor of mine to introduce Jim Wallace here at St. Columbus. Jim is a globally respected writer, teacher, preacher, and justice advocate who believes the gospel of Jesus must be transformed from its cultural and political captivities. He's a New York Times best-selling author, widely recognized public theologian, renowned speaker, and regular international commentator on ethics and public life. He's the author of 12 books, including America's Original Sin. His podcast, The Soul of the Nation with Jim Wallace, features conversations with grassroots organizers, political leaders, and discusses how to take action and promote racial and social justice. He served on Barack Obama's White House Advisory Council on Faith-Based Neighborhood Partnerships. Coach Jim also served for 22 seasons right here in Northwest Little League, uh, coaching his two baseball sons. 2021, after founding and leading Sojourners for 50 years, Reverend Jim Wallace accepted an invitation from Georgetown University's McCord School of Public Policy to serve as the inaugural chair and founding director of the Center on Faith and Justice. Please join me in welcoming Jim Wallace. So Josh and I often talk in the baseball field. Uh, can, can you hear me okay? Back? Yeah. It's great to be here in the neighborhood. Um, I want to just give some opening remarks and then I want to have some time to talk back and forth, okay? Um, just to correct the bio a bit from this morning, I'm no longer at Sojourners. I was there for 50 years but want to turn it over to a new generation. So now, when a university like Georgetown uh, takes your two favorite words in your life, faith and justice, and makes it into a chair in the center, you're a happy camper. So that's where I am. Um, we are here today to confront, I won't say talk about, confront an ideology on the rise in this country. It is rooted in what I call America's original sin, the sin of white supremacy. And that old ideology is now being undergirded by an old heresy with a new name called white Christian nationalism. I would say white Christian nationalism is the single greatest threat to democracy in America single greatest threat, the chief obstacle. This old heresy now is combining with an old ideology. Why? Because, as I mentioned briefly in the sermon, we are at the place in our history, at the point, where we are on the verge of the possibility, nothing is inevitable, but possibility of becoming 
the first multiracial democracy in the world. And that's a big threat to a lot of people. At this very moment, white Christian nationalists are working to disempower black and brown Americans in an age-old tactic called voter suppression. I'm on calls several times a week with black clergy and rabbis and imams in 10 states where we're expecting aggressive confrontation, the challenging of voters, even intimidation of voters, all openly planned and being trained for and only targeting black and brown neighborhoods. Fulton County in Georgia, Wayne County in my own home state. Only urban neighborhoods, cities where black and brown voters live. It's not new, it's being planned, it's being openly admitted, no shame whatsoever. Why? Because they're not the right kind of Americans. They're not white Americans. And I quoted in the session we had Wednesday night at Georgetown, the words of retired General Michael Flynn, uh, who is now a leader in the white Christian national movement. He says, the people whose votes we're trying to suppress walk like us, talk like us, but they do not want what we want. So how do we understand what they want? And I would say, how do we stop them from getting it? Okay? Why? Why is the big question? Why is this happening now? This kind of movement ebbs and flows. It does ebb and flow. And now it's happening because we are on the verge of the prospect. Uh, this country, John Meacham said the other day, this country is only 60 years old. He means since 1965, Voting Rights Act, was the first time we could all vote. 1965. So John, the historian, said, so we're really only 60 years old with this multiracial democracy. But now that could happen, and people are afraid. So this is what I would call the movement of crossing the color line to racial democracy. It's going to be a crossing of the color line from a majority of white nation to a majority nation of minorities. Crossing the color line. It's a national issue. It's a cultural issue. Uh, it's a church issue. And it's a personal issue for every one of us. I tell my students at Georgetown, America is a story. It's a story. I don't like the language of who's a racist and who's not. It's a distraction. It's a waste of time. America is a story of race. And the question for us is, how do we fit in that story? How are we a part of that story? And how can we change that story? So I want to talk about this crossing the color line today.
And I want to begin with my story. So my first conversion, I'm from an evangelical background, we have many conversions. My first came when a revival preacher showed up one night for a Sunday night service. And it felt like he was pointing his finger right at me because all the unsaved kids had to sit in the front row because people feel the closer you are to a sermon, the more impact it'll have on you. That's why we're empty here in the front row, always. But we had to sit there, and, and he, it felt like with fire and brimstone, pointed his finger right at me, it felt like it said, if Jesus came back tonight, your mommy and daddy would be taken to heaven, and you would be left all by yourself. Got my attention. I was growing up in years, I was six. And I realized if that were to happen, I'd have a five-year-old sister to support. So my mother, the caring woman that she was, no, it's not about the wrath of God. God loves you and wants you to be one of his children. I said, that sounds good. So I signed, signed up. But my second conversion came later when I was a teenager. I grew up in Detroit, in Motor City, Motown. And when I got to be about 16, I began to listen to my city, hear the news, read the papers, and some books, have conversations with those adult people. And the more I learned, the more I began to feel like something was really big and really wrong with my city, my country, and yes, even my church. And the more I talked about those things I was learning, the more I began to see like, to feel like the people in my white neighborhood, my church and white school just didn't want to talk about it. Just didn't want to talk about it. So I remember questions I asked, there were things like, why is life in white Detroit so different than life in black Detroit? I mean, I'm hearing stories about people, families, who are poor and even hungry in our own city, who live in bad housing and dangerous places and I even know, I'm hearing people who have family members in jail. I didn't know any of that stuff from anybody I knew. But this was happening just a few miles and blocks away from us. And I remember the answer to my questions were, son, you're too young to, to ask those questions. Or when you get older, you'll understand. Or we don't know why it's that way, but it's always been that way. The only honest answer I got was, if you keep asking questions like this, you're gonna get into lots of trouble. And that answer proved to be true. So I wasn't getting any answers from my white church, white school, white neighborhood. I tell my Georgetown students, trust your questions. Follow them to wherever they take you. Trust your questions. So I took my questions 
into another world. I wasn't getting answers in my world, so let's take them into another world. So I took my naive white boy questions into the, we call the inner city of Detroit, hoping I might find the answers. And I remember uh, I needed money for college, so, so I, I went and took jobs alongside young black men in Detroit, hoping I could hear some answers to my questions. And I found life stories, heard life stories, so different than my life story, but stories that would ultimately change my life story. I'd never heard about black churches. <laughs> and I wonder why we'd never heard about them or visited them or been visited by them. So I went to black church, I just showed up at black church, showed up. And I was warmly welcomed and patiently did they answer my obvious questions. But the big epiphany, and I use the word because I'm in Episcopal Church, <laughs> the big epiphany came one night when one of my new friends, a fellow janitor, um, young man, wanted me to meet his family, so he took me home. His father had passed, but his mom I remember what she asked us, or what she told us. He and I were talking about the police in Detroit, how the way that black people were being treated was causing more and more confrontations, led to the riots in Detroit in, in 1967. We're having this discussion, and she said, well, his mom. So I tell all my, my kids, if you're ever lost, can't find your way home, and you see a white policeman, duck under a stairwell, hide behind a building, wait till he's gone, then get out and find your way home on your own. When she said those words, my mother's words just screamed into my head. She told her five kids, if you're ever lost and can't find your way home, look for a policeman. The policeman is your friend. There are friends, they'll take you by the hand and bring you home. This mother was not a political militant by any means, just wanted to raise and protect her kids, like my mom, two moms, two different sets of advice for their kids, if they're black or white. Two different worlds, two different nations. Butch, my friend, he and I had been born in the same city of Detroit, and we had grown up in different countries. Our families had grown up in different countries. The more I listened, the more I, I realized that this thing called racism wasn't just personal, it was structural. So just, I began to compare, and ever since compare Butch's family to my own. And so, James E. Wallace Sr., um, my dad, graduated from college, was commissioned in the Navy, and got married all on the same day. 
a busy day getting the troops out to the war. And he went to the Pacific. And when he came home, all the GIs, like my dad, got two big things, the GI Bill and FHA loan. The FHA loan allowed you to get your first house, buy your first house. And GI Bill, the education that you needed. Education and housing make families middle class. My government made my family middle class. And so all, our, all the houses, the three-bedroom ranch houses in Redford Township, where we live, right near Detroit, were all run headed by, by GIs like my dad. It was our way of life. But none of the black sailors on his ship got those two things. No black GIs anywhere in the military got those two things. So they were denied the, the two biggest affirmative action programs in the history of America. And their exclusion meant the racializing of our neighborhood. That's because it made our neighborhood all white, it made our schools all white, and therefore made our churches all white. Racialized geography. Now, the more I listen, the more I learn that this deliberate racializing of geography made us separate. Today, as we sit here, 70% of white people, 70%, don't have one significant relationship to a person or family of color in their inner circle. We talk to you all the time, parents, about our kids, their hopes and dreams, their, their futures, their sicknesses. It's bonding, right? Little League Baseball parents, all the time. It's bonding. But it doesn't happen even today across racial lines. That was deliberate from the start. So where are we now? People say, well, have we made progress from those days? Yeah, we've made progress. Is it enough? A lot of white folks I know say, yeah, it is, or they think it should be. But black families don't think so. Can we stop asking all these questions we hear all around about race? You know, this is behind us. Didn't the Civil Rights Movement fix this? Martin King, Rosa Parks, didn't they all fix this? Can't we stop asking these questions? No, we can't. In fact, more than ever, it's time to seek the truth about what is happening in America today. Crossing the color line is what creates proximity. Proximity. And proximity is what builds relationships. America's original sin, this human hierarchy based on skin color, lingers, or as Brian Stevenson says so eloquently, it evolves. Jim Crow is now wearing a suit instead of sheets. 
and is making a final compact comeback to prevent a united democratic future. So I want to suggest today what is the current strategy of white supremacy in modern terms. In a single sentence, to prevent our changing demography from changing our democracy. Say it again. To prevent our changing demography, which they really can't do. They can try and slow and prevent, but they can't stop our changing demography. But they want that, prevent that from changing our democracy. So what we're seeing really is a, a commitment to white minority rule by voter suppression, covert, overt, by racial gerrymandering, restricted immigration, election denial, electoral corruption and manipulation, judicial bias all the way to the Supreme Court, and when all else fails, the promotion of political violence, as we saw on January 6th. And there is more of all those things to come. So today's racism is the resurgence of an old ideology combined with the return of an old heresy. It is a false gospel named white Christian nationalism. And I think its very name spells the heresy. The very name spells the heresy. It's white. Our gospel message is the most diverse, inclusive message in the whole world. We proclaim it every Sunday, but this is not that, this is white. It's Christian, but not suggesting service, but domination. Christian on top of everything else. It's nationalist. I mean, Jesus gave us a commission, a great commission, going all the world to make disciples of every nation. White Christian nationalism doesn't cross lines. It creates them. It seeks to divide, and it leads this country down a path to where our politics are going, a trajectory that begins with fear, goes to hate, which leads to violence. That's our now political trajectory. Fear, then hate, then violence. As contemporary as Friday's news at the Pelosi home from San Francisco. So that's where this is taking us. And this isn't just important in Washington. <laughs> but in all of our local communities where we live, where we, where we have neighborhoods, where we go to church, this is literally defying, as I said in the sermon, defying Jesus' commandment to love our neighbors and even our enemies. 
So this is not for me just political. This is, as I said in the sermon, Christological. Who is Christ for us? This battle for the soul of a nation is being fought in all of our neighborhoods, communities, congregations. And what we vote for in all of our elections from top to bottom, it'll be fought at Thanksgiving dinners this year, with family and prayer groups. It's time, as Jesus said, to tell the truth. So crossing the color line to democracy is the beginning, I think, beginning of the journey to repent, repair, and redeem America's original sin for white people, especially for white Christians. And crossing the color line is what opens the world up to us. It helps us to find the truth that Jesus said can set us free, free from the bondage and baggage of white supremacy. Crossing that color line is what will create on the network, a whole network of creative, caring, bonding relationships that I think will become the foundation and fabric for the common good. A new network of relationships, which will be the whole foundation for what we call in church today the common good. And it'll, it'll lay those foundations for that wonderful term that our nation's civil rights leaders have given to us, their vision for what they call a beloved community. Now, I think people of faith have a particular role to play here. And I'll end with this. In a totally polarized, politicized country where even literally pastors call me and say they're getting death threats from their members. Pastors are telling people if they don't agree with the politics, they're proclaiming they should leave. We see our opponents demonized and dehumanized. In that kind of world, whoever could be the peacemakers, the conflict resolvers, those who listen and get people together, could be the necessary um, tools, the necessary players, the necessary agencies, agents in all of our layers of society and would be called blessed. Jesus says they will be blessed and they'll be called this very special designation that he gave to such people. He said, I'll call them the children of God. So we need some children of God right now, and we need some white children of God who are going to speak up against white Christian nationalism. So let me stop there.
and see what questions or comments you all have. I, you want to use a microphone, Joshua? A request that everyone comes to the mic to ask questions so the people uh, who need uh, assistance hearing, but also online. We've got about 12 minutes for questions. It's a hard stop at 11, everybody. So. Okay. So let's be quick and, and line up behind the mic. Okay. Um, thank you so much for being here. You've been a hero of mine for a long time. Um, what I'm concerned about is solutions, especially as we face an election where election deniers are going to get elected and our system of democracy could be in real trouble. Um, what I see is the organizational structure of the evangelical churches is often being used to the advantage of people who want to promote white Christian nationalism. For example, Mike, Michael Flynn is doing, I believe it's called a reawaken tour, going around to evangelical churches. And then the tightly organized structure of those churches is being used to promote people to go to the polls and right. intimidate people. Okay. What can we do about that? First of all, uh, as I mentioned in the book, Jesus and John Wayne, it talks about some of that. But let's not let other white Christians off the hook. White Catholics and white mainline Protestants are involved in all this too. This is a white issue, not so much a theological issue. So uh, I have clergy from Arizona saying they're going to elect leaders here, governor, secretary of state, who, who are election deniers. They could take over the whole election process in Arizona and, f and, and the, even the prospect of free and fair elections. The last time this was tried by the election denying former president, uh, he was stopped by Republicans in many states that up upheld their oath and said no to what he asked. Those people are all being replaced. They're being replaced, so they often say successful coups are often preceded by failed coups. If we think January 6th is over, it's just begun. Even the committee says that. So now we see a real process underway to obstruct. And Stephen Levitsky wrote the wonderful book, How Democracy Dies. Another book to read says, democracy can die at the ballot box at the ballot box, and often has. This election is a dress rehearsal. It's a um, laboratory. It's, we're training a 1,000 poll chaplains to be at the most vulnerable polling places uh, around the country. And we'll see what happens in this election. And the real election that this is all planned for is 2024. Let me be blunt. By January 20th, 2025, we will see if our democracy has survived or not. Steve Levitsky was one of those scholars who thought this is incremental growing over time, and it is. Now he says that election 
is going to be a turning point one way or the other. So we're, what we're doing, we're involved, involving all kind of people uh, in all those states, 10 states, and this has to become a, what we talk about in all of our places where we have influence, presence. This has got to be talked about, particularly by white people. Everywhere we go, this is going to be our issue. This can't just be an issue for black people. I'm so weary of how, uh, how urgent black clergy are feeling. Urgent, scared, terrified. Because if democracy goes down, it's going to go down, first of all, on the heads and lives of people of color. And they know that. And they want this to feel as urgent to white Christians as it does to them. Yeah. I, I think, too, that um, we need to get both, both the uh, blacks and whites need to stick together to uh, stop this white uh, Christian takeover because this country be, can become a dictatorship if we don't watch out. Well, Bishop Curry, at the end of our session the other night, he said, let's all hold hands here. <laughs> Holding hands is more than symbolic. We have to show, particularly if we white Christian nationalism is unchristian, okay? It's unchristian. And white Christians have to say white nationalism is unchristian and say that together with our black and brown brothers and sisters. Yeah, a couple more. So I grew up in the evangelical church in a, Me too. a lot of politically purple areas, and something I've encountered in conversations has been sort of a white moderate passive disagreement to a lot of Christian nationalism. A lot of, I think this is extreme, but I don't necessarily see it as a threat the way that I think myself and many other folks in the room would have come to see it as. Um, so in terms of breaking through in those types of conversations, how do you think it's useful to change hearts and minds in terms of changing that mindset from a passive disagreement to a more active resistance of a force that's really corrupting the As I said in the sermon, and will after this, uh, like Bishop Curry, I want to go to the text. What do the texts say? What did Jesus say? Um, as he pointed out Wednesday night, in his Episcopal Church, there are certainly Republicans and independents and Democrats. But we're all accountable for what the text says. And uh, loving our neighbor, John Meacham says it well, uh, what it means to treat adversaries as neighbors and not enemies is crucial for democracy. So what I think we, we can't do is have, you know, uh, politically moderate or liberal or progressive white people say, well, this could be a problem, but uh, I don't see it as a great threat. I want to say the leadership of people of color in, in churches are feeling urgent about this, urgent. And so the text I want to go, I don't want to argue politically with people. I want to go back to the texts, and I went through them in the sermon. What are these iconic biblical texts that I think are going to be the touch points? And my response to all of them as I read them today was, do we believe this or not? 
You can't do this and accept this and support this if you believe the text. So if you don't believe them, say that. But stop calling yourself a Christian. The text is, is clear what Jesus said about loving your neighbor, about the truth making us free, about Matthew 25, about the least of these. Uh, it's all in the text. And I want to bring that, those texts, particularly to churches, and say, either we believe them or not. This won't be solved by a political argument. White Christianism is a theological heresy. It must be defeated theologically, starting in the churches. And our, our poll chaplains are Christian, Jewish, Islamic. They're across all. We are multi-faith, multiracial, and multi-generational in this campaign. Yeah. Thank you for being here. I know we don't have much time. Um, I would like to ask about parents of white children and teachers, uh, white teachers in public schools like me, what we can do in these gentrified neighborhoods and how we can empower the children who feel less than empowered in these situations because they aren't voting yet. I know we talk about it a lot, but other ideas? I wish we had more time for that one. Um, all of the talk about critical race theory, there's a Canada who just ran on that in a nearby state, um, is to prevent our children from knowing the truth about our society. And Jesus is right. You know the truth to set you free. Desmond Tutu said, always in South Africa, we need to admit where we are, acknowledge what's true to get to a new and better place. And so uh, the great replacement theory which these shooters are all reading about on the internet from what we hear, uh, and critical race theory is an attempt to deny our, our children the truth. It's interesting, when I hear parents say, I, I, I don't want my kids to feel like they're personally responsible for slavery, which is, I think what those parents are really, really afraid of is when our kids read the story, they'll identify with the abolitionist. When they hear the truth and hear the story, our kids may decide, like I did when I was a kid, that this is wrong. It's not acceptable. I'm not worried about kids feeling like they're personally responsible for slavery. That's, that, that, that's to cover them hearing the truth that could make the parents feel uncomfortable in their privilege their denial, they're ignoring what I just talked about, the hierarchy of this society. Economics, education, policing, criminal justice, it's all racially organized. My class this semester is race, faith, and politics, and they're learning how everything is racialized. Everything. Now, I can, if I have more, more time, I can prove all that, but I'll just say, I want to kiss you realize it's racialized. And back to Little League, I found that my, my kids, my white kids, players, when they realized that their teammates, black teammates, fathers and mothers, were having a talk with their teammates, their kids, about how to behave and not behave in the presence of a policeman. And it made the white kids mad. 
This is happening. I didn't know it's happening, and many of their parents didn't know it's happening. The talk, the talk, the talk. The talk is universal among black parents about how, back to what I learned in Detroit. Today, it's still true. Every black parent I know, no matter what their socioeconomic level, that can be the highest level in the city, they're afraid for their kids on the street. White parents aren't. So our safety, our protection, makes us feel less urgent. This is an everyday worry for black parents in America today, no matter who or where they are. So we got to start, and I think our kids in Little League, and afterwards, I'm in touch with those, those kids still, they get it. They hear it. They don't feel like they're bad. They feel like they want to change it. And that's the thing that I think I'm most, a new generation, now, and, and with this, a new generation of young white believers that I'm talking to all the time, they want to join with black and brown leaders in the churches to create a new American church. A new American church, maybe a remnant church. That's what they want. That's, I'm not just against what's happening, I'm for the building of what Bonhoeffer called a confessing church, a remnant church, a church based on the truth. And I think that battle is going to go on right in the heart of the churches. So I want to start there. I want to thank you very much. I said, I, I said a hard stop at, at 11, but we've got one last question. Real, oh. One last question, real quick. It's, I want to thank you very much for coming here. I saw the sign outside, so I thought I'd better go and hear this lecture. I want to tell you, I think you're just fantastic, and I think you have the idea of how we become brothers and sisters in Christ. I see this idea. And I wish you could go to all churches and talk about this because we're brothers and sisters. And until we can reach across the aisle and say, can you break bread with me? Can you come to my house with me? I've been at a church for 15 years. I have less than seven people have invited me to dinner. I'm a lay minister and I do all kind of work in my church. And I appreciate that. And I think that the only way America or any country will ever come to be a Christ-filled church is when we realize there is no difference. The blood is the same. And I just thank you for what you said. I thank you for saying it begins with the church because the stuff you hear on television and preachers preaching, it is awful for them to say that I'm here to teach you the word of God because if you pick up the King James, the new edition without thus and thou and all of that, you'll understand perfectly. And I love God and I love other people. And one last thing I want to say, I hated you with all my heart because I had been abused and beaten up in the South by a brother of yours that was your complexion. Wasn't really your brother, but he was your complexion. And I went somewhere in South Fallsburg and there was an intensive and they said, stand up till the hate is gone. It was two rounds, I was still standing. On the third round, somewhere 
the almighty, the entity of the spirit of God touch my heart. And I can love my mm -hmm. people in the church, my brothers and sisters yeah. in Christ. And even those that hated me, I could love them without a shadow of a doubt because you can't take that away from me because I have the spirit of God in me. So when you get that, you won't worry about what color I am. Thank you very much. Well, I'll, just, I'll just say, I agree with your strategy of having this talk in every church in America. I agree with you. And the question, the other, the other phrase, brothers and sisters, this will come down to, in the end, put it very simply, whether white Christians believe that black and brown Christians are indeed their brothers and sisters in Christ or not. Okay? Thank you again. Yeah. All, all, all got that. I think you have met Glenn Jones at Georgetown. Maybe not. What does he teach?